Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, a podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm Joshua. And I'm Hugh. You're listening to The Wrap Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. We're covering a lot of different stories around the world today, from Eastern Europe to Hong Kong. As always, there's lots to talk about, so let's get into it. Well, Josh, this time I've got some pretty consequential news to bring to you, and it comes from Eastern Europe, specifically the border between Ukraine and Russia. In the past weeks, we've started seeing large-scale Russian deployments to the border with Ukraine in scenes that are very much reminiscent of Moscow's now infamous invasion of Crimea. According to Ukrainian officials, Russia has now deployed at least 28 battalions to the occupied territory of Crimea and its eastern border with Ukraine. And it's alleged that Moscow might be moving a further 25 battalions to those regions. In total, that would bring Russia's deployment up to around 53 battalions, which includes armored, logistics, air defense, and artillery contingents. Naturally, Ukraine is seeking to match those deployments, with videos posted to Twitter allegedly showing large numbers of Ukrainian assets being moved eastward to the border region as well. And to make matters worse, we've witnessed a significant escalation of rhetoric on both sides. For its part, the Kremlin has made a number of very threatening remarks about Ukraine's strategic alignment with the EU and NATO, as well as about the Ukrainian Donbass region, which is occupied by Russian-backed separatists. The Kremlin's deputy chief of staff, Dmitry Kozak, said that if Ukraine began hostilities in the Donbass, it would be the beginning of the end of Ukraine. He also threatened military intervention, saying that Moscow would defend Russian-speaking civilians in the region if push came to shove. As for Ukraine, it's begun making unprecedented remarks about Ukrainian membership in NATO, a subject which has long been a red line for officials in the Kremlin. Ukraine and NATO, we can be stronger together. So I think we can safely say that the situation represents the highest level of tension that we've seen between Russia and Ukraine since 2014. Is there any sort of indication that we have as to what Moscow's motivations might be in the midst of all of this? Yeah, that's certainly been a point of debate between international analysts. Right off the bat, I think it's worth stating that Russia isn't necessarily going to invade. Its current deployment to the Ukrainian border wouldn't be enough to push into Ukrainian territory, uh, especially given the recent improvements that the Ukrainian military has undertaken. But that doesn't mean Russia's forces aren't being used to promote the Kremlin's interests. One motivator might be Putin's fall from domestic grace. Russia has been rocked by protests in the last year in light of the COVID pandemic and the unprecedented activism of Alexei Navalny. And this has all taken an immense toll on Putin's support. Vladimir Putin's approval rating is at its lowest level in more than two decades, a poll found on Wednesday. Putin's support fell to 59% last month, compared to 63% in April. So he might be trying to win some of that back by playing the strongman against Ukraine. Another motivation could lie in Washington and Kiev. The Kremlin might be trying to test US President Biden's resolve in Eastern Europe in an effort to see how far he's willing to go to resist Moscow's advances. 
Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Zelensky has been very active in shutting down pro-Russian television stations and challenging pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine. So Moscow might also be trying to retaliate against his systematic unwinding of Russian influence in the country as well. And of course, at a strategic level, as Washington, Brussels, Ankara and Beijing chip away at Russia's interests across Eurasia, this could also simply be an exercise in Moscow reasserting itself in its geographic neighbourhood. That all sounds very ominous. Are there any predictions as to what will happen? Well, unless Moscow significantly increases its deployment to the region, uh, it's unlikely to launch an all-out invasion of Ukraine. I should note that one of the reasons we know so much about the movement of Russian troops towards Ukraine is because the Kremlin appears to have taken no active steps to stop its citizens from filming the movement of military equipment across the country. There's really been no secrecy to these deployments. And that suggests that Russia could simply be posturing. And if that's the case, it would certainly fit a number of the motivations I just discussed, particularly around wanting to intimidate NATO and Ukraine and to shore up domestic support for Putin. Uh, but the other possibility is a limited intervention on Russia's part. Moscow certainly does have enough forces already in place to move into the separatist-controlled Donbass region in the name of peacekeeping. And recent rhetoric from the Kremlin would certainly suggest that that's something they'd consider. Russia could claim that Ukraine was aggressively targeting Russian speakers in the region and formally move its forces into Donbass for the outward purpose of protecting them, which would obviously be a significant escalation of the conflict. So all in all, this is something to keep an eye on in the days and weeks to come. And the question really is, what will Putin do? Only time will tell with that one. Hugh, that particular very patriotic song was the intro to one of North Korea's news bulletins, presented by Ri Chun-hee, who is the infamously enthusiastic North Korean newsreader. Now, although she officially retired in 2018, she tends to reappear for major announcements. And on this occasion, she was reporting on the 6th Conference of Cell Secretaries, which is a major political event held every few years in North Korea. And party officials gather from across the country to hear leader Kim Jong-un deliver his vision for the nation. Now, as usual, there is a lot of pomp and ceremony, and Kim Jong-un definitely got quite the entrance. But in contrast to all of the cheering and the triumphant music, Kim's message itself was actually not very upbeat. He warned that the country was facing its worst ever situation. Now, those are pretty stark words, especially coming from a country that has a brutal history and it's also notoriously secretive. They sure are, but what's the situation he's referring to? 
Yeah, well, he was referring to the economic crisis that's currently engulfing North Korea. And to give you an idea of how serious this crisis is, Kim Jong-un compared it to the so-called arduous march, which was a famine in the 1990s that was brought on by the collapse of North Korea's economy. And it's estimated that during the arduous march, about 240,000 to three and a half million people died. So for Kim to be saying that party secretaries should prepare for another arduous march, a more difficult arduous march, is actually a pretty consequential thing. That doesn't sound good. Why is North Korea even in this situation? There are multiple causes, but there's no prize for guessing the main one. And that is, of course, COVID-19. When the virus first appeared, Kim Jong-un ordered North Korea to shut its borders. And this was no ordinary border closure. Authorities have reportedly issued a shoot-to-kill order on those entering the country from China. Now, this means anyone within a kilometre of the North Korea-China border will be killed, regardless of the reason for them being there. US forces in South Korea... It's thought that Kim took such a hardline approach because he was worried that the country's dilapidated and under-resourced health system would be overwhelmed by COVID-19. And according to the evidence that we have, Kim's approach looks to have been pretty successful. There hasn't been a major outbreak that we know of. But the border closures have actually had a massive side effect. They've effectively destroyed the economy. And that's because North Korea depends on trade, mostly with China, to survive. Its main source of income comes from exporting goods to China, including coal and a whole variety of other strange items, including wigs and soccer balls. Chinese tourists also visit ski and spa resorts on the North Korean border, giving the country valuable tourist dollars. The Ma Ski Resort that was built under Marshal Kim Jong-un's love for people serves as a popular sports base for people. And what's more, North Korea imports a lot of its food, consumer goods and medicines from China. So with the border sealed, all of that has been cut off. To give you an idea of how significant the effect has been, the value of North Korean exports to China dropped by 96% over the last year, down from an average of about $15 million a month to just $600,000. The ban on imports has also caused extreme shortages of food and basic goods. Despite the fact that this could turn into a very serious humanitarian crisis, North Korea actually shows no signs of opening its border. This past week, it announced that it had withdrawn from the Olympics because of risks that its athletes would bring the virus back home with them. Yeah, I heard about that in the news, and it certainly takes border politics to a new level. Uh, But are there any other reasons for the crisis beyond COVID? Yeah, it's a real mix. So on top of COVID, extreme weather has wiped out crop harvests. And the main harvest season in North Korea, which runs through April to September, has been the regime's wettest in almost 40 years, making the North's food shortages even more acute. This is according. North Korea has also been plagued by corruption and mismanagement for decades, so it has very little capacity to bounce back from these types of shocks. What's more, it's really starting to feel the effect of sanctions imposed by the UN in retaliation for the country's nuclear program. Wow, so are there any clues as to how the world is likely to respond to this? 
Not as yet. Interestingly, South Korea has actually asked the UN to relax some of the sanctions and to send humanitarian aid to North Korea, but it's unclear whether major countries like the US will agree to that. You see, despite its financial problems, North Korea has actually started to ratchet up its missile tests. Just last month, it launched short-range missiles off its east coast and also issued these very vague threats to US President Joe Biden. That prompted Biden to warn North Korea that they would suffer consequences if they continued. The UN Resolution 1718 was violated by those particular missiles that were tested. Um, we will respond accordingly. And as you can see there, Biden is taking a very different approach to his predecessor, President Donald Trump, who, as I'm sure we can all remember, had quite the colourful relationship with Kim Jong-un. When I did it, and I was really being tough, and so was he, and we were going back and forth, and then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. So overall, I wouldn't count on any sanctions relief for North Korea. That is, unless it significantly dials down its nuclear and missile program. What that means for the North Korean people, though, is unclear. No one wants to see a repeat of the 1990s famine, but unless borders reopen soon or sanctions lift, I think it's hard to see how a crisis can be prevented. Yeah, well, given all that, do you think it's possible that the economic crisis could snowball into some sort of leadership crisis for Kim Jong-un? Look, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see the end of Kim's reign anytime soon. You've got to remember that the regime has emerged unscathed from similar, if not worse, crises before. What's more, it's actually had the help of some really powerful friends, chiefly among them, China. So the Chinese government has been propping up the North Korean regime for a long time now for various strategic reasons. And I think if things get really bad in North Korea, it's likely China's going to step in to financially support Kim's government. So I think Kim Jong-un is going to be around for a little while longer. Well, Josh, unfortunately to this day, it's not uncommon for major news stories about conflict in Africa to slip under the radar. And I've got a really great example of a story you might have missed, which comes from Nigeria. You see, last week in the Nigerian city of Aweri, more than 1,800 inmates were broken out of prison by militants armed with rocket-propelled grenades and machine guns. Channels television gathered that the attack occurred in the early hours of today, after which the hoodlums set the facility ablaze. The gunmen also raised the Imo State Police Command Headquarters in Oweri and burnt almost all the vehicles parked at the command headquarters. The attack on Oweri's prison was one of several coordinated assaults throughout the city. According to local police, the militants even attempted to gain entry into the main police armory, where large amounts of weaponry and ammunition are stored, but they are apparently stopped from doing so. As for the prison break, while a very small number of prisoners have voluntarily returned, the vast majority are still at large. And while Nigerian police have vowed to find them and return them to custody, clearly the situation on the ground is pretty out of control. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. So who's to blame for this? Who released them all? Well, from what we've heard from the Nigerian state authorities, the attacks were allegedly launched by a group called the Eastern Security Network, 
or ESN for short. And the ESN essentially acts as the armed paramilitary wing of an outlawed separatist group known as the Indigenous People of Biafra or IPOB. And for anyone with knowledge of Nigeria, the name Biafra might ring a bell because that's the name of a breakaway state which unsuccessfully fought for independence against the Nigerian government in the 1960s and 1970s. On the periphery of their diminishing country, Biafran troops try a small, brave assault on the Nigerian enemy. The assault comes to nothing, a brief counterattack in the steady and bloody process of retreat. That conflict is now known as the Nigerian Civil War, and tragically, it led to the deaths of over 2 million people. So it's a rather significant moment in Nigerian and West African modern history. Why is the conflict flaring up again all these years later in 2021? It's a good question. The first thing to remember is that Nigeria is a truly inter-ethnic society, much like Ethiopia, which we've also explored on the wrap-up. But essentially, in this case, the IPOB represents the Igbo people of southeastern Nigeria. Biafra itself was an Igbo-dominated breakaway state, and the modern-day Nigerian state of Imo, where the prison break took place, is also almost entirely populated by the Igbo people. So just like in the Civil War, this conflict is occurring in the Igbo heartlands of Nigeria. And in recent months, there's been a real uptick in violence between the Igbo ESN forces and the forces of the Nigerian state, which is dominated by another ethnic group called the Fulani. The recent conflict really flared up in January. And it's seen local curfews, alleged torture, airstrikes against the ESN, many attacks on police stations, and really an all-out insurgency in the local countryside. So does this mean we're seeing effectively a continuation of the Nigerian civil war? Well, hopefully not. The last thing Nigeria needs is anything close to a repeat of such an awful period. But in some ways, many of the same disputes which started the first war are still ongoing. There are still many social, political, and economic disparities across Nigeria's ethnic groups. And interestingly, Nigeria's current president, who comes from the Igbo's rival ethnic group, the Fulani, was actually an officer in the civil war. And a decade after the conflict, he even briefly ran Nigeria as a military dictatorship. So as you can imagine, trust is pretty low between Igbo separatists and the central government right now. My one hope is just that we're not seeing a repeat of the civil war. What you just heard there were the sounds of nearly two million protesters taking to the streets in Hong Kong all the way back in 2019. And I'm sure many of us remember the extraordinary violence. And also the desperation of the protesters as they sought to prevent China from taking away Hong Kong's democratic freedoms. Uh, I don't think the authoritarian you know, government that China has can coexist peacefully with the democracy Hong Kong. Since those protests, Beijing has escalated the crackdown. More than 10,000 protesters have been arrested or prosecuted, and new laws have effectively outlawed the Hong Kong independence movement. All of this has begun to tarnish Hong Kong's reputation as a global business hub, after all, it was Hong Kong's democratic history that made it a safe, 
reliable destination for investors. Now, with all of that threatened, workers and businesses have begun to flee the city. And that is really worrying to the Chinese government. Chinese companies rely on Hong Kong to get access to global investors and overseas markets. So China is doing everything it can to convince businesses to stay in Hong Kong. What's the Chinese regime doing then? Well, its primary strategy is tax cuts. And these are, let me tell you, no ordinary tax cuts. They pretty much exclusively benefit hedge funds and investors. The government there is also reducing disclosure laws, allowing companies to avoid revealing their ownership structure and financial activities. And have these efforts been working? Well, it seems to be. In March, Cambridge Associates, which is a $30 billion investment fund, said that it planned to open an office in Hong Kong. And it's joining a lot of other companies that are doing the same. More than 100 new investment companies have been set up in Hong Kong in just the last few months. At Morgan Stanley, a global collective of thought leaders offers investors... Major US banks like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and Bank of America, so really recognisable names there, are also increasing their existing Hong Kong staff. Credit Suisse has also said that it would triple the amount of people that it hires this year. So in the midst of a huge political crackdown from Beijing, it seems Hong Kong is actually experiencing a business revival. But surely all the benefits being given to these companies come at a price, yeah? Yeah, they do. So these companies will effectively have to pay for all of these tax cuts by staying silent. It's pretty clear that the Chinese government expects them to stay out of the political arena altogether. As one prominent Hong Kong banker said to the media recently, you may have political views, but you're not a political activist. Well, in that case, if businesses are going to remain silent, where does this leave the independence movement in Hong Kong? I think it leaves the movement increasingly isolated, within Hong Kong at least. While there's international support for the protesters, there's very little that foreign governments can do to improve conditions on the ground. They're mostly limited to issuing diplomatic statements or offering support to Hong Kong residents who want to flee. For example, the UK announced last week that it would set aside £43 million to help Hong Kongers emigrate to Britain. The UK said Thursday the money will mostly go to programs for English language support and housing and efforts to help those from Hong Kong find jobs. Since January, thousands But meanwhile, China continues to tighten its grip on those who remain in the city. In March, it passed laws to reduce the number of Hong Kong MPs who will be elected by the public. Instead, these MPs are going to be chosen by officials in Beijing. We've also seen numerous high-profile activists convicted by the Hong Kong courts just last week for their role in the 2019 protests. And these people could face up to five years in prison. So I think in that context, it's interesting to see some businesses doubling down on their Hong Kong activities. And in my opinion, it really reflects a global conversation that's going on at the moment about the role that businesses should play when it comes to humanitarian and societal issues. Is their primary purpose to make a profit for their shareholders or do they have broader responsibilities? 
And that is the key question that I think is playing out currently in Hong Kong. For sure. Uh, and on that complicated ethical note, that's all for this wrap up. Next week, we'll be bringing you a Trailblazer episode. Jen will be sitting down with Yasmin Poole to discuss her success as a speaker, writer, and youth advocate. And follow us, the Young Diplomat Society, on Facebook or Instagram for more great analysis and content. And we're also recruiting audio editors for Global Questions. So if you want to be involved in the podcast, now's your chance. You can find all the details in the description for this episode. We'll see you next week. Bye.